I'm going to start with a story, and it's going to make me sound really pretentious, and I'm really sorry about that. But it just, I'm quite pretentious sometimes. So this time last year, I was living in Rome. That's not the pretentious thing. Um, but it was, it was a really lovely time. I was there for a few months doing some work um, with the relations between the Church of England and the Catholic Church. Um, and I had visions of how I would spend my time there. I was going to sit in beautiful squares and drink espresso. And I was going to walk past the ruins and listen to amazing guitar music. And I was going to go to all the art galleries I could find and look at all these incredible artists that I'd never heard of. I did do a lot of that. But what I realized was, I don't really like espresso. It's too strong. The crowds around ruins get really annoying when you're trying to get home for lunch. And religious art gets really, really repetitive. I re this is probably a heretical thing to say, sorry. Um, but once you've seen one crucifix, I feel like you've seen them all. That's quite bad, but anyway. It's the abs. I don't understand the abs on Jesus. It's very strange. But there was one artist who I really liked. Whilst most of these artists were depicting Jesus and his disciples with halos, blonde hair as if they were Western, and flowing white robes, even though they'd walk on dirty paths all day. There was this one artist, Caravaggio. He's also the only one I can remember the name of, so that's handy. So Caravaggio um, would paint real people. He was famous for using models um, who were just people off the streets, you know, real people. He didn't show them um, looking beautiful, looking like angels, looking divine. He showed them in real-life situations, often in quite dark, moody paintings. And for me, one of the most beautiful things about the God I worship is that he became man. He became human to meet us in our humanity. So I looked at all those angel paintings, and they're lovely, they really are. But they didn't, I didn't connect with them. But I connected with these paintings. That does sound very pretentious, I'm so sorry. Um, one of the artists, one of the artist's favorite person to paint was John the Baptist. And I made a point while I was in Rome of going to find every Caravaggio painting I could because they're all around in like cathedrals and it's a nice thing to do in the afternoons. So um, one really rainy afternoon, I was sitting in a gallery and there were two paintings by, by this artist either side of the room, both of John the Baptist. On one side of the room, it was him... Um, as a young teenage boy when he, when he moved out to the desert to be an outcast. He's waking up in the morning, he's in a cave, there's some bowls and plates and things in the corner, obviously how he would just do his day-to-day -day activities. And he looks, you almost feel sorry for him. And then the other side of the room was the scene, um, which we haven't had read, but it's quite a, a difficult scene, of John the Baptist's head on a platter being given to Salome by Herod the king. I sat there and thought, how did he get to there? How did this young boy end up there? And I think we've got the pictures here. That makes him look more tanned than he did in the actual picture. He looks very pale in the real picture. I got quite emotional. And since, since looking at those pictures and thinking about that, I've thought, if, such, if someone believes in a cause so much they're willing to live this life, 
they're probably worth listening to. So I thought that's what we'd do today, is listen to him and see what he has to say in these passages and how he lives his life and how we can maybe take a little bit from that. So, for a bit of context, John um, is the person in the New Testament who we hear about who is sent to prepare the way among the Jewish community for Jesus. So Jesus has prophesied he's the Messiah, he's the one the Jews have been waiting for, and John is kind of there preparing them for that. He's also Jesus' cousin, And we have this really amazing thing in in Luke's gospel. So in the Christmas story that we hear at Christmas of of when Jesus is born, Luke, every time he mentions Jesus, also mentions John. So Elizabeth, John's mum, conceives a son, um, even though she's old. Mary conceives a son, even though she's a virgin. Elizabeth's husband is told by an angel that his son will be a prophet. Mary is told by an angel that her son will be the child of God. The community rejoices in John's birth. Random angels and shepherds from miles away rejoice in Jesus' birth. There's a pattern here. And that pattern speaks of two things. It speaks, firstly, of this idea of preparing the way. John is there to prepare the way for Jesus. But it also does another really clever thing. So the writer of Luke also writes Acts, which is the book of the Bible, which we, um, we learn about how the early church figured out who they were and what they were doing. So in in beginning his work at Luke and ending with looking at the church, Luke shows that God included people, humans, real humans like this, in his salvation plan, in his plan for the world from the very beginning. It, It was Jesus, but it was people were involved in that. I think that's so beautiful. So let's look at what John says. You brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? If I'd have started like that this morning, I don't think it would have gone down very well. Maybe it would. Maybe we should rewind. That is pretty challenging stuff. So in Matthew's gospel, we hear that those people he was talking to were the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they are the super religious types, the ones who who kept themselves pure from the rest of the world. They didn't eat with, with impure people. They kept all the laws of the Old Testament very strongly. But we hear later on in the Bible, when we, see, um, when we see Jesus interact with them, that their actions to stay pure, to stay holy as they see it, doesn't move them to compassion for people. It doesn't move them to action. It doesn't move them to love. So this is John's reaction to them. So John's baptizing people here in the baptism of repentance, it's different to this baptism, but we'll get on to what this baptism symbolizes soon. But John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. So it's people wanting to say, I know I'm going the wrong way, I know I'm, I'm doing things wrong, and I want to change, I want to be different. So what he's saying here to these Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious people, is if you bear fruits worthy of repentance, then you can be baptized by me. If you... Do things that show that you want to change. And he also says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I'm able to tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. So these people thought they had a right. They had a right to be right with God. They had a right to be one of God's people. They had a right to it because they were born into it. But John says, anyone, God can make anyone part of his family. You don't have a right to it any more than anyone else. 
If you say you are holy, what are you doing? Show me the fruits of your repentance. And when they ask how, he says, share your coat. He says to the soldiers and the um, tax collectors, don't be corrupt, don't steal money. Now, I think when we listen to this, it's quite easy to switch off because we can all say we can't do those things. You know, I don't steal money. I don't think I'm that corrupt. Maybe I am a little bit. And, you know, I, I buy a sandwich for the homeless guy around the corner sometimes. I share things that I have. But I think this is a really great word, especially for those of us who already have a faith, that we can all be hypocrites from time to time. So while I was in Rome, um, the research that I was meant to be doing when I was sitting in squares drinking espressos was, um, was looking at the communion call. So when we have communion, what that means for how we are community. So the fact that having communion and sharing food with one another um, is a powerful symbol and, and a way to illustrate our community and service to others and all these wonderful things about the gospel. And it's something I talk about a lot. But last week, I was given two opportunities to practice what I preach, and I didn't take them. I was sitting in, a, in the Millennium Galleries of my parents last Saturday. And this guy walks in, clearly a rough sleeper, quite young, and he walks in, and uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, I need money, but he comes right up to our table and he says, I need food. And we just didn't really know how to react. I was a bit taken aback. It's not very often that in England... People come in, come in, who are begging come into restaurants. It happens elsewhere, but not really in England. And we were taken aback, so we just kind of gave him a fiver and sent him on his way. And then we all sat there and thought... Sorry, my earring got in the way. We all sat there and thought, what are we playing at? We're sitting here with food in front of us. There's three of us, three seats that are occupied and one that's empty. We should have invited him to eat with us. And then later that evening, I had my friend round. And we were making pizza with her daughter in the garden, in our pizza oven. And the next-door neighbour, who's new to, new to, ta- new to the area, um, and I've chatted to her a couple of times, came by, and she said, um, oh, that looks interesting, what are you doing? I said, oh, we're making pizza. And she said, oh, they look really good. And I went, yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun. I'll let you know how it goes. Why didn't I invite her to join us? Twice in one day, I didn't practice what I preach. I say that sharing food is a way to communicate the gospel. But twice in one day, I didn't do it. We can all be hypocrites. Or maybe I'm just a hypocrite. I think there are lots of ways we can be guilty of this. We say we want to share the gospel, but there is that friend who is just too hard to talk about our faith with. We say we're about forgiveness, but there's that one person who we really like to judge. We say we believe in a God who loves his creation. But when we're faced with creation dying in front of us, the church is hardly leading the way in the fight against it. What John does in these passages, in this first passage rather, is he sees the sin and calls for change. But what Jesus does is so much more than that. The baptism that we are having, the baptisms that we're having today, mark so much more than what John's baptisms marked. So I said earlier that I'm pretentious, um, so I'm about to quote some philosophy. I'm really sorry. I'll use some more relevant analogies next time. But if it's any better, I get all my philosophy from this really dodgy podcast, and it's um, 
probably doesn't make it better, really, does it? But there's one nugget of wisdom that I've really held on to um, from it recently, and some of you have heard me say this before. But there's this philosopher who talks about the way in which the world responds to the realization that things are wrong. Most social groups, and I think we can very much see this today, especially in the political um, sphere, most groups of people are so inclined to blame the other. We blame the other political party. We blame the other race. We blame the other community. We blame the other class, the other country for the problems. But what the Christian faith offers is something different to that. We admit, or we're called to admit, our share of the blame. We're called to acknowledge that we are part of the mess of the world, that we are complicit in all of the rubbish that's going on, that we, are, um, we mess up, we're hypocrites, we do things wrong. And what happens in our faith is that Jesus on the cross, the one person who is blameless and hasn't added to any of this rubbish, the one person is the one who takes the blame, who takes the punishment for all of us. I just think that's amazing. So the first step in that process is kind of what John does. So John, um, John points to the fact that we need to acknowledge that we're wrong and we need to change. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. But doing life right is hard. Has anyone ever watched The Good Place? We've got a few cheers. That shows it's, it's all this section. Anyway, I'll talk to you guys. So, <laughs> um, in The Good Place, the, the premise is... I'm really sorry. If you're going to watch it, maybe close your ears because I'm going to do a second season spoiler. But in The Good Place... Um, yeah, close your ears. You're good. Um, in The Good Place, the premise is that um, when you die, there's a point system, and the people who are particularly good go to the good place, and the people who are bad go to the bad place. Pretty simple. And kind of reflects the general agnostic vibe that's around in this culture. You know, we kind of think, if you're good, we'll be all right. If you're not, you won't. But what you realize in the second season, close your ears if you're going to watch it, is that no one is good enough to make it to the good place. <laughs> No one gets enough points to go to the good place. And what we have is Jesus, who gives us a way to be good enough. Baptism under Jesus marks his free gift of forgiveness. It marks his filling us with his Holy Spirit and commissioning us to join in his work. It marks joining in his family as we're all supporting each other to live this life. We're washed afresh, forgiven, and given the Holy Spirit to empower us. It really is an incredible gift. In this second passage, John's kind of just checking in uh, with Jesus to see if he's the Messiah. We don't know if this is because um, he genuinely didn't know or if he wasn't quite sure, um, but it's quite likely that the way that Jesus is acting isn't quite what he expected the Messiah to do. So the Messiah is the name that the Jews gave to the person they were waiting for to come and save them, basically. And um, when we hear how John describes what he expected the Messiah to do, it was you know, clearing the threshing floor, separating the wheat from the chaff. But what Jesus does is, we, as it said, let's just find the passage. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And then he goes on to say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We have it better than John. John understood the need for repentance. He understood the need to change. But he hadn't yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He hadn't yet seen and witnessed the work of Jesus. God made man acting in these amazing, compassionate, powerful, miraculous ways. Now, empowered by the Holy Spirit and having seen Jesus, the God of love, the God of healing, salvation and hope, and through his death being offered forgiveness, we're free in a ways that John was, John was speaking to in that passage and a way that John himself wasn't. And we're free to participate in God's plan to restore, to restore people and the world to wholeness and intimacy with its creator. I have um, a college friend from when I was down in Bristol training. And um, one day we were sitting in our offices and I came out for a coffee break, which I did several times an hour. And she was sitting on the sofa. Uh, she was sitting on the sofa and uh, she looked really down. So I said to her, you know, what's up? What's wrong? And she said, um, I've been researching this environmental stuff. It's hopeless. There's nothing. The world's going to end. And I was like, that's a bit bleak, you know. I'm sure it's not that bad. We can still, you know, this one, one and a half degrees thing and all that. And she said, no, that's it. That won't do anything. We have ruined the planet that God gave us. And the only reason I am still trying is because when I see God when I get to heaven, I want to say, at least I tried. I found that really hard. Now, what my friend did for me there was brilliant because she challenged me in my own actions. I hadn't really cared that much about environmental stuff before she said that, but she challenged me. But I think what she did was similar to what John the Baptist did. What John the Baptist did and what she did is present the issue. We are getting this wrong. We have done this wrong. We need to change. It's almost like they're preparing for the wrath of God. But in Jesus, we know that we have a God who is the God of miracles, the God who has a plan for us, the God who has a plan for the earth he created. And as Christians, I think we have a, new, a, a unique voice, both in this environmental thing and in so many other areas. And that unique voice is one of hope. We acknowledge things are wrong, but we believe in a God who wants to make them better. Our faith needs to be an active one, like John calls us to. We need to be active. But it's also trusting, trusting in God and trusting in his forgiveness of us. So as I close this morning, I just want to say to you, to those of you who are getting baptized, you're mainly over here, aren't you? Great. Those of you who are getting baptized, thank you. Thank you for doing this and making this commitment because it is such an amazing symbol for us to see. I think... Um, those of us who have, uh, who have been baptized for a while, it can, faith can get a bit stale. 
sometimes, and it's amazing to be inspired again, so thank you. It's such an amazing and exciting step you're taking, and my prayer for you today is this, that in this symbol, you would humbly step into his free, God's free gift of forgiveness and experience the joy of serving the God of love for the rest of your life. If you're new today and you maybe came to see one of your friends baptized or a family member baptized, um, and anything that I say or has been said in the testimonies that you see um, just strikes a bit of a chord with you, can I really encourage you to go and chat to the person that brought you and just ask questions? I'm sure they'd love to talk to you. And for those of us um, who have maybe already been baptized or been a Christian for a while, I think it would be really good um, if we could respond in this way. Maybe if the band could um, come up. I felt really, I was going to preach something totally different, but I felt really convicted um, on this thing of I say I am, but. And I wonder if maybe for a lot of us here, um, in an attitude of baptism, we can bring these things before God, maybe during the worship, bring these things before God and receive afresh his amazing gift of forgiveness and be renewed in our drive and zeal to serve God. Maybe some things have um, already been playing on your heart, something's already popped into your head that you know you're a bit of a hypocrite with. And um, yeah, I just, I just really pray that during this time, we can address those things and bring them before the Lord. And if you want to um, grab someone to pray with you about it, please do. We're community. We're sitting in a circle. It feels even more community-ish. Um, but please do grab someone to pray with you. Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to worship now. <laughs>